Welcome to BerryCast, a podcast from Cloudberry Creative exploring all things UX. I am Virginia Vieta, your host. This season, we're holding a dialogue about the broken rung that women face on the corporate design ladder by listening to some of the talented women who are changing the industry. Today's guest is Kristen Wisniewski, Vice President of CIO Design at IBM. You may have heard of them. Kristen leads the design team in one of the world's largest IT shops, a multi-award winning team that contributes to creating a productive environment internally for hundreds of thousands of IBMers, an environment that by necessity is in a constant state of change. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. I'm really excited to be here. And so am I. So let's jump right into it. AIGA and Google's 2019 design census revealed that even though women and gender non-binary individuals make up over 60% of the design workforce, only 11% of women hold leadership positions and make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men. These statistics inspired this series of conversations that we're holding right now. So Kristen, what do you think about when you hear those numbers? I think it's such a shame because it means that the executive ranks are not taking advantage of the full talent pool. And we've seen so much good research in this space by Google and otherwise to show that diverse teams are smarter. They make more fact-based decisions and are more innovative. So companies that are not taking advantage of these these hidden, if you will, talent pools are just making a, a huge mistake by also not having a diverse leadership team at the helm to drive this. So what do you think are one or two key factors that are holding women out of design leadership in these organizations? I think first is building a diverse team from the start, which then will create a strong pipeline of diverse future leaders. And then I think for those in position already, not advocating uh, may become part of the roadblock, not being able to be vocal about what you want and where you want to go, even if that's not exactly what you were taught. So I think when you know what you can envision your future looking like and you find allies who will help you map that out and you can be expressive and, and informed about where you want to go, people are very willing to want to help you get there. And so the advocacy angle and, and allyship to me, I think is so crucial and in investing in these mentors as a, a great way to continuously expand your network is how you'll find the people that will want to help raise you up and will want to bring your name forward in rooms that you're not in yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we'll talk a little bit more in a minute about your thoughts, uh, practical ways to solve these. But first, I want to talk a little bit more about your story and what brought you to where you are today. So what brought you to user-centered design? As I was rounding out my final classes at Binghamton University as a psychology and human development double major, I randomly ended up taking a course called user-centered design. And within minutes of the first class, I was in love. I hadn't even known that this fascinating subject matter existed. And it felt to me like the perfect blend of the arts and the sciences and in a way that results in helping people and and solving problems. So the course was taught by an IBM professor, and he helped me then afterwards land a co-op assignment for my final semester of undergrad. And uh, the rest is kind of history. It's been nearly 20 years, um, and I ended up learning so much on the job, leveraging my education, 
and all the newness of technology in the early 2000s and went back and got my advanced degree while working. And to this day, I work side by side with that professor, Danny, who serves as an experienced strategist for our team and remains to be a trusted advisor, mentor, and friend to me. You were stolen away into uh, into user-centered design um, and found this uh, this internship, this co-op, um, and then you stayed. This is really unique. You basically have been with the same employer since that first internship. It's 20 years and still running. So what keeps you with Big Blue? There's so many things. First, I would say I'm, I'm proud to work for a company of purpose. And you know, IBM really values design and uses design to solve problems. And one interesting thing about IBM is because it's almost like a bunch of companies within a company, you have the ability to have multiple careers um, if you wanted or to follow different paths. Um, so I've felt like I've lived through so many versions of IBM and I myself have grown and evolved along with it. And today the work we do is interesting and it's challenging and it makes a difference. And I feel like the longer I stay, the more reason I have to stay because my network is growing, our team is growing, our reach is expanding, our impact is deepening. And I just feel a, a, such a sense of trust uh, within the team and loyalty to the company. And I feel like I've been given the time and space and agency over you know, investing in a team that really is going to change things. And we've been actively doing that. And um, I can't even imagine not being here. Krista, I'm hearing you talking about the team, the teamwork, the team environment at IBM. And I've also noticed just in posts and pieces I've found on you and in our conversations we've had so far, you're always enthusiastically, consistently crediting the team whenever discussing your work, uh, you know, CIO's work, IBM's work. Um, I'm particularly struck by how you refer to your team often as a true team. Um, so let's talk a little bit about teamwork. What does it mean to be a true team as opposed to being a great team or an effective team? I think a true team gives you more than you ask for and feels like they're part of a social contract where we're all in this together and we're human beings trying to not feel like we're doing a job, but we're on a journey together and we're doing great work and we feel the impact of that and we feel passionate towards what we do every day and we're excited to get up in the morning. I think a lot of that is due to just for me, culture is my number one priority. I've been really fortunate to have the opportunity to build a team and get to know the individuals and get to understand what makes them tick and is this a good uh, cultural fit in both directions, and also to have started with a strong foundation of the core team members, many of, of whom trained me and, and are still here today. So I feel like at this point, I've built so many personal and professional relationships within the same people, because these are, it's not just a team is not just a set of resources. It's a collection of individuals. And we think of it that way. And we try to enrich the experience in all the ways that we can so that we feel that every day. Um, so you you stress culture is a huge priority, the, the social contract, the environment, um, and then also about 
building a, a, a great team that diversity is an important piece to have from the beginning. Um, you know, how, how do you pull all of that together? How do you, how do you synergize that to build a true team from the ground up? I think you just have to take the time and you have to make it a priority. And as my boss would say, you have to make investments in the relationship bank. And in some ways, it starts with recruiting to make sure that you have that right fit on both sides. And I think in general, it's it's easy to say, I have the ability to hire X amount of people this year and grow our team and our, our impact. And that's a, that's a great position to be in. But you have to, as a leader, realize that these are not just 30 people coming through the door like this is. 30 different personalities and 30 different sets of background and experience and insight and thoughts and interests and everything. And it all needs to be considered. And as you're building this team, you need to be sure that you're rounding all of that out so that you really truly have the best benefit of, you know, the best ideas only happen after all the ideas have been shared and everybody feels free and comfortable to voice their opinions and ideas and so I think when you find those, uh, the people that who are hungry for it and curious, willing to try, okay with failure, have that empathetic problem-solving approach and are just excited, passionate people, for me all day long, that's that wins out. And then when you marry that up with the expertise and you've got a really winning equation. I know that you lead a team of 150 and for comparison, the U.S. women's national soccer team is made up of 23 players. Uh, so tell me, Kristen, what is it like leading more than seven soccer teams? <laughs> well, love the question. <laughs> Hadn't heard that one yet. <laughs> I, it's a massive challenge in general. Uh, as far as design teams go, this, this is a big, big team, very big. And I think it's two part. One is about creating a true foundation that enables this team and, and the value that we bring to be embraced and valued in the organization. And then the other is having really strong leadership team that's able to execute on the vision and help scale the culture because they act, they truly embrace it and they're role models to all of the team members. And it's you know similar to soccer in that every coach has assistant coaches and a captain on the field and leaders within the, within the team. And I think that's a crucial part of what helps us to operate as seamlessly as we can. I feel that this is a natural segue into design ops. Um, design ops, relatively new aspect of design practice management, or at least uh, relatively recently articulated and documented and um, and something that people are actually actively saying that they're practicing. Um, I know that you've said that this has been your team's answer to effectively running your design operations within CIO. And so I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what design ops is, uh, what it means to you, what it means to your team. Absolutely. I think it comes down to two different ways of thinking about it. One is design ops is the way we inject design into our IT operations, which is both a mindset and in terms of our ways of working. And then the other is the way we operate as a healthy team ourselves with maximum efficiency. And that's that's the way that we can scale our impact throughout the organization. And the alternative to that 
would be something like hire hundreds more designers, which is not a feasible solution. So when your remit has not changed and there's hundreds of projects to support in a three to 4,000 application portfolio for the company, you have to make some equity decisions in terms of where you spend your time and how you spend your time. And in order to best support our portfolio and CIO and my peers and these cross-functional teams and missions that we're charged with, we we had to embrace design ops. And we are so thrilled and happy that we did because it's had so many great uh, payouts for our team. I think most simply put, we define it as the coordination of a broad range of programs and initiatives. And the whole point is rather simple in that we're trying to ensure designers who are hired to design can spend as much time designing as possible. So is there a specific success that you can say, that you can talk about, that you can point directly to saying this this was design ops, this would not have been possible without having this structure in place? The most recent one that we're working on in conjunction with adopting OKRs is making sure that the designers are working on the highest priority projects in the portfolio. And it's always been a a little bit of a mystery as to whether or not that's actually happening, both to us on the design team and also to my peers. And so we've been working very hard at transparency and visibility, and we've been sharing our backlogs and we've been applying algorithms to say, how many users does this impact? How frequently is this thing used? So there's a couple of factors that we put into our equation. And then on the other side, we get a priority ranking of one to five, where one is the absolute highest priority and five is not. And when we actually put this on paper recently, we learned that we had some designers staffed on some fives and some ones that weren't staffed. And it's only just been a matter of circumstance. Some projects that are ones came up later than a five. We hadn't really figured out what the algorithm was, but when you apply some measurement like this and you you end up taking the emotion out of the equation so that it becomes very clear and it enables us to just know with certainty that we're supporting the most the highest priority most valuable pieces of work that will have the biggest impact across the entire company so we work very hard to try to uncover the pain points think about people's expectations try to realize that the the product is the experience and the experience is the product and it's all kind of intertwined. And we're just always checking and validating. And then we have these measures in place along the way to know that we will be successful in what we do. And the cross-functional team, back to where I started this conversation saying that it's it's a there's a bit of a mindset change here. And I think we've embraced that as an IT department at IBM. And there's a lot of we as a team, not just the designer on an eight-person squad, we as a team are committed to giving, designing and delivering the best and most effective and productive experience to an IBMer. And stepping back to the designers themselves, have you been getting much response from the designers themselves about, uh, about appreciating this, this way of working? Definitely. And because we're all about measuring, we measure ourselves almost the most where we have to start somewhere. And that is where we started with measuring our own engagement and looking at all the reasons why, but also measuring 
our productivity and measuring how many users are involved in our research studies, how many studies did we do this month versus last month, how many communications went out and how effective were those communications and how many people clicked the call to action. Um, so we, we've got all kinds of measures and everybody sees them monthly in in our readout and is able to see the progress within the, the subunit of design that they work in. We have pretty much the A-B test of everything we've done because we were measuring it before we did something new. So we know if that new thing is helping or hurting or no change, and then we respond accordingly. And this one already through the pilot that we just recently ran has shown great success in all the ways. So we have just released to our team that this is now our part of our new official process. That's amazing. Kristen, let's just take a quick detour um, because although I know that I could talk to you all day, we don't have that much time. And there are a couple other topics I want to cover. Um, you bet. We are recording this episode right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a worldwide crisis. It's, it's affected our work, our home lives for more than six months. And some of us are under some level of shelter in place guidance and have been since early spring. Um, wondering how has this pandemic impacted your role as a leader? It's a great question. Our objectives haven't changed, but we're forced to adjust the way we all interact. One thing I found personally that's been really important is that, and also really difficult, is to try to find that balance between being an inspiration and an inspirational leader with being real and recognizing the hardship around us and the gravity of all of it and that each person has their own experience that they're living through and we may or may not be aware of it. So I've personally been having one-on-one -on -one chit chats uh, with members of the team to just find out how are things going? Just the most, you know, just as human to human, I'm not here to talk about your projects or really any of that. It's just, how are you doing? What's, what's it like for you? And it's really helping me to have a rounded out view. And for me personally, I, I have, I err on the side of um, being or trying to be as, as upbeat and, and cheerful and energetic and inspiring, all of that to, that to inspire and reflect that my true excitement of, of leading this team. But that doesn't work all the time and certainly not in this type of situation that we're in. I think you can, you could see some, as it said, uh, toxic positivity. And I'm trying to balance out being that inspiration and, and encouraging that with also just being really real about the, the holistic view of what's going on and what we're experiencing. I think that that's so important as well. You mentioning the toxic positivity and that idea that if you just say everything's going to be okay, it, it is, and that's not necessarily true. But this ties back to something else that you had told me about. Um, um, I think that you actually used the term just a moment ago about being authentic. Um, and that it's important to note that it's not only okay, but it's actually preferred to be your authentic self at work. Um, it's probably particularly difficult um, and challenging right now because a lot of the things that are authentic don't align with what we think work, uh, proper work behavior is uh, right now during this pandemic. But just in general, talking about being your authentic self, um, I know that this advice 
is especially valuable uh, to women, gender, non-binary individuals, which you know is part of the reason that we're talking to you today is talking about how to encourage uh, and make the environment uh, better uh, in design for women and gender non-binary individuals. So tell me a little bit more about being your authentic self uh, now and in times that aren't as challenging in the workplace. I think the most important thing that you should bring to any job is being true to what you believe in. I think it creates a much more fulfilling experience for everybody involved. And to try to be someone you're not is exhausting. Hmm. I tried that out when I first switched from practitioner to leader in IBM and it didn't work for me. You know, it, I soon then realized that people will respond much better to you when you're just being real and you're actually, you know, we're all just in this trying to do the best we can. And there's such a huge importance put on these relationships. You're doing so much as a leader. You're not just managing the team. You're managing upwards and you're managing sideways with your peers. And there's so much going on that I, I just can't see any other way than, um, feeling protective over the team and honest and transparent and visible to the, the degree that you can and taking ownership of, of what you say and do and being a real role model or at least behaving in a way that you hope is, is um, considered to be a role model to others. So altogether, we are really focused on being real, being honest and being able to know and understand that diversity of thought reveals blind spots and you have to be open to knowing that there's something better or different that you could be doing. I think when you're real with your teams, you can help determine which fights are worth fighting and not all of them are and not all of them can be because you lose up your credit upwards really quickly. So you can't be the, I can't be the leader who's always like, oh, but this, we really want this. So everything is fact-based and I choose the battles wisely based on hashing this out with the team and trying to learn the difference and work through what's most important and why. And, you know, we won't always have our way um, in everything we're doing. And we might have a great proposal that it's just not time for yet. And we might have to wait on that. And so there's a lot of negotiating in all the, the directions, but ultimately I think we're an, an empathetic bunch that wants to do good things and that really values hearing different voices around the table and hearing the honesty and that authenticity is the core of all of it. I love that you mentioned the table because I promised earlier that we would return to questions that, that brought us to this conversation. Um, and you had mentioned earlier that uh, a lack of diversity from the start um, and also not advocating for diverse talent um, around the table were key factors that were holding design leadership positions out of reach of women who could successfully fill them. Um, and uh, not, of course, in the organization that you're working in right now, but that's just uh, that's just what you're thinking were potentially key factors elsewhere. I'm just wondering where how would you start to solve that problem? I think as, as leaders in terms of building teams and working on a pipeline that is diverse is to, to very actively be building diverse teams and 
bringing in diverse groups of candidates for every single role. When you have then a diverse group, you naturally have a diverse pipeline and you can see more clearly your future leaders and have the opportunities kind of baked into the way you operate. And then I I think, as I mentioned with allyship and, and advocacy, really spending the time to invest in the expansion of your network and knowing that people really do want to help. And I personally, I mean, I was, I want to be this person for others. And I am all in on having the most impactful, effective, and truly happy team. And I think you can only get there by having a a true, a truly diverse team. And then so much will flow from, from just that. I mean, there's a recruitment aspect. I, I think when it comes to the fact that women are not paid as much and where we started this conversation, I, my recommendation on that front is to women, to non-binary individuals, but really to anyone is to take the time to understand and articulate the value of your skill set and what you bring to the table and to have your voice and research that. We talked a lot about research today. Skills, we, sh- we should each know what our skill set is worth and it enables us then to have fact-based discussions and about our future, about our where we are today, about what our dreams are and what our career path looks like, and then find people to help you chart that out. I think that's fantastic advice. I'd like to close with a question that we're asking all of our BerryCast guests. If you could take anything back to the drawing board for a complete user-centric overhaul, what would it be? I think given where we are at this at this moment, you know, one of the potential outcomes is that no business will be able to stay completely as they were. Everything, every business, because of the changing requirements in the world, will need to reevaluate, reimagine, you know, look at the workflow, look at the impact on on people um, post COVID. I mean, there's no other, there's no other choice right now, and it's a massive challenge, but as with most challenges, this also offers a, a great amount of opportunity. So I think about things like the experiences we've collectively had and really loathed, like uh, going to the DMV hmm. or going scheduling that really big window of time with your cable person or someone coming to do work at your house and you're, you know, you have to just be there for say eight hours and, you know, in business that that doesn't work. You could you imagine saying to someone, you may be tomorrow somewhere within an eight, eight hour period of time, we can connect and you're left just wondering. So I, I hope and sort of assume that in this reevaluation, we'll be able to improve service-driven experiences like that and be able to offer then in turn more ease, ease of use and convenience and productivity in our lives. And wouldn't that be great if we are just more effectively using all of our own resources And even something like with telehealth becoming so much more prevalent, if that becomes the way the service industry, the healthcare industry evolves um, and we use our home devices to transfer biometrics and we don't have to hop in our car and get gas and sit around other sick people and feel like we then missed doing this meeting and we missed out on this and we missed the soccer game and I've expended energy and natural resources at that That um, all of those things, it sounds really exciting to think of the ways that we can be really thoughtful about the new reality of 
of what we're up against. Well, I feel like if you're involved at all in that rethinking, that we're in good hands. <laughs> well, Kristen, just want to thank you again for joining us on BerryCast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our chat and I appreciate the opportunity. 